Hi, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast, where I go in-depth with the most intriguing people in the world of soccer. On today's show, Colin Udo of Quasi Sports joins me to talk about the Africa Cup of Nations, which starts Saturday, including its history, its appeal, and why it always takes place in January during the middle of the European club season. Most of Africa, especially Sub-Saharan Africa, is tropical. Unlike elsewhere where you've got different seasons, winter, summer, fall, and all that, we only have two major seasons here, which is the dry season and the rainy season. Now, the summer is usually the rainy season here in Africa. And because of the state of some of the facilities, you go put a tournament in the rainy season and everything gets rained out, then it just becomes a whole new ballgame entirely because it, it totally mocks up the entire tournament. All that and more coming up. With the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations starting on January 14th, our guest today is my friend Colin Udo. Colin is one of the leading authorities on world soccer, including the African region. You can find him on Twitter at Colin Udo, C-O-L-I-N-U-D-O-H. He will be covering this year's AFCON in Gabon for Quasi Sports, which is on Twitter at K-W-E-S-E Sports. Colin, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Grant. It's good. My first time. <laughs> yeah. Great to have you on here. And, you know, Africa Cup of Nations is one of my favorite tournaments. I've only been to one. Uh, that was in Angola in 2010, but mm. really enjoyed it. Like watching it on TV. Uh, this year's version uh, is going to be on BN Sports in English, Univision Deportes in Spanish. Uh, this tournament's every two years. There's great talent involved. I remember getting my first glimpse of Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang in the mm. AFCON. Uh, the games are often very entertaining. Just to start, what is the significance of the AFCON to soccer fans in Africa? What does it mean to them? Oh, it's very, very um, important. I think it's our own version of the World Cup. I mean, you, you might equate it to um, the Euros for the Europeans and um the, the Gold Cup for you folks over in um, North America. So, yeah, it's something that people consider very, I mean, the people are very emotional about, very passionate about, um, and um, everybody wants to win it, big or small, especially the big countries um, like Ghana, Nigeria, Egypt, South Africa, Cameroon, um, Morocco, Tunisia. So it, it's the kind of tournament that, you know, it evokes a lot of um, emotions for people in, on the continent. Is part of that having to do with, there's so many great African stars now, but almost all of them, the top ones, play in European club soccer. Does it have to do with the ability to see your heroes on home soil in Africa in person? Well, um, I'm not so sure because, in fairness, not too many people get a chance to go out there to see the game. So they, they, they only see, get to see the games on TV, just the way they see them when they mm -hmm. play um, uh, in Europe. I, I think it's more of um, a, a nationalistic sort of thing, patriotism, people just relating to their countries and, um, you know, following their teams just because it's their country and they want to defend their national pride, whether it's for by winning trophies or um, in terms of banter, trust me, the kind of banter that goes on around when the Nations Cup comes around, you, you, you don't want to be in a bad place with your national team. Whether it's between Nigeria, Ghana, Cameroon, South Africa, you know, Egypt, people really get some really serious ribbing. So it's a matter of national pride 
and also, you know, of um, sort of like banter pride. <laughs> <laughs> so you got to help me with one thing here is why does this tournament take place in January, right in the middle of club season? Uh, you know, usually when we talk about uh, continental tournaments, those take place in the, the summer uh, mm-hmm. in June or July when the club season isn't going on or we see World Cup qualifiers taking place on FIFA dates when the, the club calendar stops. The club calendar goes on and, and teams in Europe, especially that lose top players to the Africa Cup of Nations are rarely happy. Like, Why does this happen in January? Well, um, first of all, you've got to understand that this this was the first um, continental tournament that um, of any of the others. I mean, way before Europe or anybody else, the African Nations Cup started, and it started just like this. Um, the second thing is, um, Africa. most of Africa, especially um, Sub-Saharan Africa, is tropical. You know, and we've got, unlike elsewhere where you've got different seasons, winter, summer, fall, and all that, we only have two major seasons here, which is the dry season and the rainy season. Now, the summer is usually the rainy season here in Africa. And because of the state of some of the facilities, uh, if it rains, if a game, I mean, you, you go put a tournament in the rainy season and everything gets rained out, then, I mean, it just becomes um, a whole new ball game entirely because it, it totally mocks up the entire tournament because, I mean, games get moved just because the stadiums are that bad. So January, this January, February period is about the best because there are no rains, nothing. You get plenty of sunshine and you don't have the elements, you know, bog- uh, bothering you. But, in, in fairness, I think maybe um, a, a more can be done to maybe take it to the summer. I don't know, probably get some more stuff because, look, at the end of the day, if you can build a stadium, you can build a roof over it, you know. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm not so sure if that's going to be um, possible in the um, in the immediate future, but it's mostly weather-based. And, of course, there's a bit of, um, how would I put it, a bit of stiff neck about Africans saying we don't we are not going to let the Europeans tell us what to do with our tournament and when to play our tournaments. <laughs> now this is where I should say you are Nigerian. Uh, you split part of the year living in Virginia Beach, Virginia as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll ask you some questions about that later on. I'll ask you about <laughs> Nigeria's absence from this tournament, which is kind of crazy to me. Um, yeah. But in historic terms, first. You've been following this tournament for a very long time. What are some of the coolest moments that you can remember over the years that you've been watching and covering the Africa Cup of Nations? Wow. Well, <laughs> that's um, that's interesting. Um, I'll start with Nigeria. I think 90, well, 1980, when we won the Nations Cup for the first time, now that was really, really uh, it was an amazing moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I was I was barely a kid then, so I think I remember all the songs that, that I mean, there were lots of songs that came out of that tournament uh, about Nigeria and Algeria and all sorts of things. So it was it was I, I think that was where my interest really peaked, you know, when it came to um, football. Mm-hmm. And then um, in '94, Zambia, you know, losing their entire team to a plane crash and then still getting all the way to the final. And trust me, if they weren't playing against Nigeria, I would have willed them to win that tournament. Mm-hmm. Um, then there was also 96, where um, South Africa, just emerging from the apartheid era, came mm-hmm. out and won um, the tournament. And um, I think, if I'm also not mistaken, um, there was this great goal scored by a Cameroonian 
I'm trying to remember now. But look, there, there have been so many moments that, you know, you just wanted to keep going on and on and on. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And I've been watching this tournament for a while myself. And, and like, you know, things stand out to me over the years. I remember Robert Kidiaba, the Democratic Republic of Republic Congo. Of Congo, yeah. Uh, the guy who has his bum dance where he dances around mm-hmm. on his butt when they score a goal. And it's, it's kind of awesome. It's not something you're used to seeing. Uh, I remember Gervinho in the penalty shootout at the last AFCON, where yeah. Ivory Coast finally won, won. and Gervinho was so nervous during the penalty kicks. He couldn't watch. <laughs> he was, there's this, po- this uh, photograph of him sitting in a lawn chair, of all things, facing in the other direction, direction. while the kicks are taking place. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's lots of fun stuff involved mm. with this tournament. Um some big teams did miss out this time around. Your Nigeria has not mm. made it. South Africa is okay. not involved. Uh, mm. You know, Angola's had some decent performances. They're not involved. Mm. They've made World Cups. Um, as far as Nigeria is concerned, what happened to the Super Eagles? Well, um, I think, I mean, like, this is the third tournament miss in, what, five years? Mm. Um, so it, it, it has just been a gradual decline. I mean, by the 2010 um, World Cup, Nigeria were in a gradual state of, um, you know, a downhill um, slide. We had players who were aging, not being replaced properly. Um, younger players who were coming through the ranks who were not quite of, you know, good quality. And we just didn't have the coaching will to, you know, start weeding out um, the quality from um, the quantity. So I think all of that contributed. And then by the time Stephen Keshi came in, won the Nations Cup in 2013, everybody felt, oh, okay, we're back. But we weren't back. I mean, he, we're, we're lucky. He practically scraggled together a group of um, players and just wheeled them to the title. That was the point where, you know, Nigeria should have started rebuilding properly. That didn't happen. And then all the issues that happened with the court cases, the Federation having um, infighting, not being able to focus, we missed out on um, uh, 2015. You know, first of all, we had missed out on 2012, missed out on 2015, and then um, 2017. So um, all of those issues, financial troubles, internal fighting, and just a lack of um, a focus to, to get that conveyor belt of talent, you know, um, running, um, contributed. So I, I think, um, thankfully, it seems as if lessons have been learned. Even though the internal issues still continue, we're seeing a good crop of talented young players who are coming. In fact, I was doing a little bit of, of math um, when we played against Zambia, and Nigeria had the youngest average age of all the teams across the continent in the World Cup qualifier. I think about 23.4 years. You know, we have 20-year-olds, we have 90-year-olds, we have. Um, 23 year old, some of the oldest players. I mean, you take out Mikel, who's 29, mm-hmm. and take out um, the goalkeeper, um, Kali Keme, who's um, 30 or thereabout, and the average age just goes all the way down to somewhere around 22 years old. So that's a, that's a remarkable progress, which means this group of players have the ability to go even further than what the um, our famous class of 94 did. Okay, very interesting. I'll keep an eye on that. I enjoy covering mm-hmm. Nigeria during the Olympics. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when they're under-23 tournament or team mm-hmm. was playing. Um, who are, I guess, for the listeners out there, which star players are we going to see in this tournament that you're most excited about? Well, um, you have the usual names, the Riyad Mahrez of Algeria, 
um, Islam Slimani, you've got Pierre Emerick Aubameyang, um, and then of course you look at the Ivory Coast, almost the entire team is made up of made up of top stars. Um, you go to Senegal, you've got Sadio Mane. Um, you look at Egypt, they've got uh, Mohamed Salah. Um, they've got um, Trezor Gay. So yeah, we do have plenty of um, top players, you know, across the continent that you look at and think, wow, these guys are going to um, light up this place. But here's a caveat. We've always had big-name players come to the African Nations Cup and then spectacularly fail to deliver, you know, <laughs> because for some reason, either they're trying to keep themselves injury-free for their clubs or maybe the atmosphere doesn't just quite suit them, but they come in and they probably don't quite give you 100%, and you have um, unknown players coming out and actually doing the business more than the established ones. That's very interesting. It's something to keep an eye on because obviously in every tournament – You've got to prove yourself game by game, um, and, and nobody's handed anything just because everyone knows your name. I wanted to go ahead and read through the 16 teams that will be involved in this year's tournament mm. um, real quick here. And Group A is the host, Gabon, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, who we'll talk about in a second, mm. Guinea-Bissau, uh, Group B, Algeria, Tunisia, Senegal, Zimbabwe, Group C, Ivory Coast, DRC, Morocco, and Togo. And Group D, Ghana, Mali, Egypt, Uganda. Who among these teams, Colin, are the favorites for you? And, and who might you see as a potential dark horse? Um, favorites, I'd go with um, Algeria, Tunisia, Senegal, um, Ivory Coast, um, possibly Egypt, uh, and Ghana. Okay. Um, yeah, those are the ones you'd look at and think right off the bat. You know, these are these are the guys. But um, I'm all I'm, I'm looking more between Tunisia and Senegal. Unfortunately, they're in the same group and they're in the same group as Algeria. So you've got, I mean, three heavyweights in one group: Algeria, Tunisia, Senegal. But I think the winner is going to come from that group, either of Algeria, Tunisia, or Senegal. Okay. Very interesting. We'll keep following that. Um, looking at other possibilities here, we talked about we mentioned Cameroon. Why are some of the top Cameroon players like Joel Matip refusing to play in this year's tournament? You know, just like Nigeria, Cameroon have had um, in recent years a long history of crisis within their federation, mm-hmm. um, which they haven't resolved. I mean, it started all the way back from um, um, when you had Rigo Besong and the Samuel Eto divide when they were both playing the national team. You had the Eto click, and then you also had the um, Song click. You know, even when Song retired, his um, nephew, um, uh, the younger Song, you know, mm-hmm. also now took the, took up the mantle. So it was like you had Samuel Eto on one side, and you had the Eto, and you had the Song um, click on the other side. So that battle has continued up until now because those who stood behind Song and those who stood behind Eto are still it's still a fairly divisive um, uh, war going on there, and unfortunately neither the Federation nor the Cameroon Sports Ministry have been able to come down and say, look, you know what, let's put a stop to all of this. And that's basically what's affecting Cameroon because everything is so disorganized, um, some of the players just don't want to be involved anymore. Okay. I, I want to ask you about some of the big stories in African soccer these days. I know the world, uh, we look at the African Nations Cup every two years. We enjoy that. 
obviously World Cup 2010 took place in South Africa on the continent for the first time and focused everyone's attention on Africa. But, you know, we're now seven years after that. What are some of the biggest stories in African soccer these days? Well, (laughs) here's the thing, you know, and it's kind of funny because it's almost like a recurring decimal. African football problems always, almost always come down to financial issues and infighting. Okay. I mean, you look all the way across the continent, and anytime you see um, a big story that gets reported worldwide, it's either there's some um, financial trouble going on somewhere, or there's a federation fighting against them, uh, or a different official trying to take over. So there really isn't... Um, what you might call real clear strategic thought that would lead to um, a major improvement in the game. So it's hard to look at, you know, um, the whole of African football and think, okay, this is something that might be a big story that doesn't have to do with something negative. We try and look all the time, but in fairness, it's hard. It's it's hard to see. The good news is we've got some great young players coming through uh, the ranks. For instance, you look at the way Mamelodi Sundowns won the um, CAF Champions League and we saw a player like Kamar Biliat from um, Zimbabwe who came out there and he was amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we also saw the goalkeeper, Dennis Onyango. Um, and then we look at the Nigerian youngsters coming through um, with the likes of um, Kelechi Hanacho and Alex Iwobi and those give us cause for hope. But in, in fairness, uh, we need to have better football administration on, on, on the continent. Some of those emerging stars you mentioned, they'll be involved in this tournament coming up? Yeah, exactly. Billiard is going to be there for um, Uganda. There's um, uh, Rainford Kalaba, who's good. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. He's not going to be there, but he's Zambian and he's one of the best. I think he's one of the most, um, one of our, the hidden gems in Africa. He's a great midfielder. He plays for Zambia. He is actually their captain. Uh, and I think he's well overdue for a move to Europe. Uh, and then we've got um, Serge Nguesson, who's, who plays for the Ivory Coast. He was um, one of the top players at the African Nations Championship. Uh, that's the, the Nations Cup for local-based players um, two years ago. And he absolutely was a great, great, great star. And then you've got uh, Ameda Kaichi from Tunisia. So, yeah, some of those players are going to be involved at this tournament. You did mention Mamelodi Sundowns, the current African club champion. They're based in South Africa. Uh, South Africa itself, as a national team, has not qualified for this tournament. What is sort of the place where South African soccer is right now? I guess the national team and the club game can be very different, but has there been a legacy of the 2010 World Cup? I think the best way to describe South Africa that maybe people outside of the continent can't understand is to say they are the England of Africa. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning? (laughs) Well, meaning there's plenty of hype, but (laughs) but, but that's all it is. I mean, every year you see England always, they go into a tournament or at least they go into qualifying to a tournament and thinking, oh, we're going to do this, we're going to win this, we're going to win that. And then it all goes puff, you know. That's exactly the way South Africa... Uh, look, South Africa have got the best um, league on the continent. They've got the greatest... The, the, well, it's not the best organization. You hardly hear them have the same issues that I've talked about with other African countries. And their league is one of the most lucrative on the continent. Almost every African player who looks to go out, if he can't make it to Europe, he'd rather make it to South Africa because they pay well. The league is very organized, more professional than almost anywhere else. But when it comes to the national team... 
um, I think um, their bark is more is worse than the, the, worse than their bite. Mm-hmm. Um, they do have some good players, but um, they don't have quite the same kind of talent that maybe the likes of Nigeria, Egypt, um, Cameroon have. So um, there's way too much hype about Bafana Bafana, uh, but not enough quality to see them through. Okay, interesting. Um, there, you mentioned this tournament earlier that has always sort of fascinated me that the Africa Cup of Nations is the big tournament, the one that's starting very soon here. But there's another tournament involving African national teams, but it only allows domestic-based players from that country to play in it. And I think that's one of a kind in world soccer. I don't think there's any other continent that does that. Can you explain a little bit of what that's about? Yeah. Um, well, I mean, when the African Nations Cup started uh, originally, just like the European Championship, the, the players who represent their countries uh, played in the domestic leagues of each of those countries. Um, but with time, that gradually changed. First, it was about one or two players coming in from Europe, maybe and then sometimes half the team coming from Europe. But now, almost all of the top um, countries and even some of the, uh, the smaller, lesser countries have almost all of their entire squad coming in from Europe. So there really isn't an opportunity for um, players playing in a domestic league of those countries to get a chance to play at a high level and get the exposure that they need to get. So CAF came up with the idea of having um, an African Nations um, Cup strictly for players who are based in their own domestic league. So if, for instance, an Egyptian player playing in Egypt can represent Egypt. Um, a Ghanaian player playing in Ghana can represent Ghana, but a Nigerian player playing in South Africa, for instance, cannot represent Nigeria. So it's strictly a tournament for players who are playing in their own country's domestic league. Um, to be fair, to be frank, I'm not a fan um, of that tournament. I think it's an absolute waste of time. But there are but there are people who who, who like it. And you know, in fairness, um, some players have got um, a break from there, but not too many, which is. Again, another reason why I say, as far as I'm concerned, it's an absolute waste of time because um, I, I haven't seen a significant number of players who've played the Chan, which is how what it's called, mm-hmm. uh, make the big break to maybe a big club in Europe or elsewhere. It's just very few um, players. So uh, I'm not sure the, the tournament has achieved the objectives that um, CAF set for it. I was kind of hoping that maybe some guys had emerged from that, but it hasn't happened too often, huh? No, no, really. I mean, you can't point to one player and say, hey, this person played at the Chan and um, uh, and he became a, a big, huge star. Okay, good stuff. I mean, when I look at the FIFA rankings, and I know everyone makes fun of the FIFA rankings uh, these days, but like the highest-ranked African teams include some of the usual suspects, but not all of them. You know, when I see the ranking now, it's at the top, you see Senegal, then Ivory Coast, then Tunisia, Egypt, Algeria, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Burkina Faso. Only then do we see Nigeria, Ghana, Morocco, and below that, South Africa and Cameroon. Is that just the FIFA rankings being the FIFA rankings, or does it actually reflect recent trends that you're seeing in in African soccer, and are there some new teams that are emerging at the top now? Um, you know, look, the FIFA rankings has its flaws, um, and everybody admits that. I'm sure even FIFA themselves will be the first to admit that, you know, it's not a perfect system. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also think that, you know, it's been tweaked to the point where I think it reflects in in um, a fairly 
reasonable way uh, where each national team is supposed to be. Like I said, it's not a perfect system, but at least it gives you an idea of where you are. And in fairness, when you look at countries like Nigeria and um, how bad performances have been over the last, um, what, three to five years, you can't complain, you know. Mm -hmm. And the same thing applies to other countries as well. You look at Cameroon, for instance, the same thing. Cameroon haven't done that well, um, despite their names, unless people want to say, okay, look, FIFA should attach a certain um, um, factor to teams just because of their names and what they've done in the past. So you, you put them up there. But as far as I'm concerned, that, that shouldn't work. I, I think every country deserves to be where they are. I mean, it's interesting because when I see Ghana as this team that the U.S. finally beat in the World Cup in 2014 after just having this horrible record against Ghana in previous World Cups, and as of now, according to FIFA, Ghana is the ninth best team in uh, in Africa, and yet you still think they, they have a chance to win this tournament. Um, I'm not so well. Look, Ghana are a bit of um, I don't know. They're a bit of a mystery, really. Mm-hmm. Um, their preparations have been a bit shambolic. Um, they've also had some players not being available, and then um, you have a coach who's under pressure from the fans, and you know um, just getting some backing from the FA, mm-hmm. and then his his selection process has been sort of like um, you know clothed in some in some, also some mystery. So Ghana have the talent, you know, to go all the way, but somehow I'm not so sure they have. Um, you know, look, the, the Ghana of the last tournament could have won it. This one, I think there's just too much around them that mm. it's, hard, it's hard to pick them to win it. I think they might get probably as far as the um, semifinals, but um, to win it, I'm not so sure um, they can. They don't have enough goal scorers. Um, the midfield is where they are strongest, but at the back, they have issues. The goalkeeper, Kwarase, who's their best goalkeeper, is out now. I've been Fatal Dauda. So um, Ghana look like they, 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 they look like they have, they've got a soft um, underbelly about them. Okay. I wanted to ask you about coaches of national teams in Africa these days because you mentioned Stephen Keshi earlier, the late Stephen Keshi, who so tragically uh, passed away uh-huh. not long ago. Um, and he was such a good manager, got so much out of those Nigeria teams and other teams that he mm. coached over the years. How many coaches of these African Nations Cup teams are African at this point, and how many are coming from the outside? Well, we've got Mali, um, the DRC, Florent Ibenge, who combines his duties with Tipi Mazembe, and he is quite a good coach. Um, and then we've got um, Zimbabwe and Guinea-Bissau, so Senegal, Zimbabwe, Guinea-Bissau, Congo. So you've got that says we've got just about four out of 16 um, coaches at the Nations Cup um, who are African because African countries, as almost as a rule, uh, just don't seem to trust um, local coaches with the job of managing the national teams. Do you think that might change in the years to come? Well, maybe perhaps if Florent Ibenga wins the Nations Cup with DRC. <laughs> <laughs> well, but no, it, it's not going to change much. I think part of the problem really isn't even about their competence. I think the trouble really is that um, most uh, national federations don't seem to trust the local coaches to make the right decisions without some sort of either nepotism or some sort of um, bias towards players that they favor. So they they think that a European coach has um, uh, a better chance of you know, sort of or a, a, a better uh, grip, you know, to make an unbiased decision as against a local coach. But hopefully, um, we, we hope that changes uh, as we go forward. 
So when you go to cover this tournament in Gabon, there's going to be four stadium sites in completely different parts of the country. Uh-huh. How are you going to get around? Are you going to go to all the different sites? Are you going to stay at one? How is that going to work? Well, um, for the first um, couple of match days, I'll be at two venues, um, Libreville and um, probably, oh yeah, I'm not sure which yet, but I'm going to do two venues. Mm-hmm. After that, I'm just going to stick with Libreville until the end of the tournament because I'm getting around and unfortunately, um, to my eternal shame, I don't speak French. <laughs> so <laughs> so I'd rather not be in the position where I have to find myself needing to ask for directions and not being able to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I hear you. And these tournaments are, are fascinating. I mean, uh, you know, we, I remember back in 2010 at the World Cup, there were nights, we had a house, as you well know, in, in yeah. Johannesburg and... <laughs> Uh, some of those nights, it was uh, you, me, Gabriel Marcotti, Guillaume mm. Balaguer, mm. um, other folks from Sports Illustrated. It was uh, mm. it was a really cool international yeah mix. You know, we had fun we, then, didn't we? <laughs> we did, we did. I'm not going to go into too many details on how much fun on this podcast, but um, I do want to take some time to uh, you know for our listeners here to give them a sense of your career and, and what you've done. I know you've done a lot of different things in your mm. career. Could you fill everyone in on what those things have been? Yeah. You know, it, it's kind of weird, really, because um, I graduated college as an engineer, electrical engineering, mm. and then for some reason, um, I felt that wasn't fun enough. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I decided to leave what was basically a very well-paying job to go take do um, sports reporting, and um, I've, I've covered quite a lot of tournaments. I've covered what I think about eight African Nations Cups. Um, I've been to three Olympic Games, um, three World Cup tournaments, um, and a few others here, and, and then covered um, the national team here and there. And at one point, I was even lucky enough to be um, the press um, officer of the um, Nigerian national team. Nice. So, yeah, so, um, and then I, I think what I find, um, I think uh, what I feel proud about was that um, I was with Kickoff and when we were the first to actually start digital reporting um, in Nigeria with kickoffnigeria.com. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, before I moved over to do TV with um, Supersport. And then um, now I've ended up with um, Kwese, which again is a fresh new challenge of. Um, you know, trying to bring TV to as many homes as possible without people paying so much. So I find it's a fresh challenge and I, I'm enjoying it. But I think overall, I've had plenty of fun, like you said, at, at World Cups, at um, Olympic Games. I think my 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 first Olympic, my second Olympic Games in 2004, um, I wasn't married then, but my wife and I had met at the time. So she was playing for Nigeria and I was covering Nigeria. So it was fun actually watching her play football and representing the country on the field. So that was, I mean, uh, I um, I have that as one of the most, the best moments of my career. Well, this is the point where I mentioned you're also married to Mercy Akiti, the, in my opinion, best women's player in the history of Nigerian women's soccer. You've got a beautiful family together. How did you guys meet? How did you decide also to split the year between Lagos and where you are now in Virginia Beach? Um. Well... Um, we, we met in, I think that was about 2004, mm-hmm. um, during the African Women's Championship. Um, I had known her prior to that because I'd been following football before that, but she didn't know me. 
So, um, but that tournament, you know, I had to do an interview. I interviewed her, and then we started talking and talking, and all of a sudden, we just said we just kept talking over the phone over and over and over again. Nice. And then, of course, yeah. So, um, one thing just kind of you know, led to the other, and the next thing I know, we got hitched. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I mean, it's been fun. Um, I think that was the best decision I ever made in my life, mm-hmm. and um, it's 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 been absolutely fantastic. And um, the thing is, she used to play here in the WUSA with uh, when you know the first women's professional league mm-hmm. with San, with the San Diego Spirit. So um, that was after the '99 World Cup when Nigeria did well enough to make make it out of group stages. So she came here, became the first African player to um, play in the professional leagues here in um, in the US. Um, she also went to Milligan College. I think she set all sorts of records there playing mm-hmm. for um, Milligan College. So she was already living here. I was in Nigeria. So, um, well, we got married and then it was like, okay, where do we stay? Do we stay in Nigeria or do we stay in the U.S.? Mm-hmm. And I had a lot, she said she couldn't stay in Nigeria. And, you know, I had a lot of stuff going on with working over there because African and Nigerian football was my passion. So it kind of like resolved itself into me spending half the year in the U.S. and half the year in Nigeria. Okay, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, can you explain to me a little bit of the, I guess, the media landscape in Nigeria these days? I'm always curious about how that works. And, and with what you're doing right now covering this tournament, is that all video? Is that writing? What all is it? Well, I think everything has sort of merged into multimedia journalism. Um, I'm currently um, head of sports. Mm-hmm. Well, sports editor, the digital sports editor for Quesa Sports, and then but Quesa also has a TV arm, you know, which covers um, from a TV broadcast point of view, and then um, what we do, especially from my own side as a digital reporter, is um, I write as you know I would normally write for for a print um, version, but you know it's online, so it has to be you have the long form and also have the short nuggets for millennials you know who <laughs> unlike you and i who rather consume the long thing is these young ones just want them in little bits and pieces so <laughs> we do that i do that and i also do the long form kind of journalism and um I, I, and then i do a little bit for tv also so everything just seems to sort of you know merge into one i'm not sure the lines are that um uh, that straightforward clear clear anymore okay um, I wanted to wrap up because I know your family pays a lot of attention to women's soccer. How are things going with women's soccer these days in Africa, in Nigeria, with the new FIFA president, Johnny Infantino, making women's soccer a higher priority? Are we seeing more African countries take the sport seriously? Well, um, I'm, I'm not sure Infantino's um, ideas have taken root as yet, but um, African countries have been interested in women's football the thing is they just don't have the funding for it mm-hmm. um in nigeria for instance um i think nigeria and south africa have been the two leading countries you know trying to drive um a proper league for football ghana have also um come in there but that's just about it um tanzania i know also recently started a league so um we're seeing some progress not enough but some and um just this morning nigeria inaugurated um um, a new women's league board, hmm. which is some yeah to overhaul the entire system, 
And unlike in the past, where it was made up of um, people who run the clubs who didn't quite have the, um, so to speak, strategic vision to drive it forward, now you have more of a core group of private sector professionals who are going to run the Women's League. So, And, and they've got some great ideas. I think um, if they achieve, because I've spoken to some of them, and I think that if they get to where they really want to go to, that might be a template for the rest of the continent to take to take to learn from, and maybe we might just um, see, um, I mean, more growth in the African women's game. Now you got to tell me before I let you go here. I don't know what citizenship. If your daughters have dual, are they going to compete for Nigeria or the United States? <laughs> okay, well. Um... They are currently U.S. citizens, um, <laughs> so I, I think I got them Nigeria passports um, a while ago, but it's expired. So um, that's a tough question. Look, from from my point of view, I'd rather have them compete for the U.S. But because they, yeah, but their mom is their mom wants to play, compete for Nigeria. So <laughs> so. When we get to that bridge, I think we're going to cross it. <laughs> I sense an Udo Akide family battle uh, <laughs> well, about to happen one of these days. <laughs> well, it is ongoing. Good stuff. Well, Colin Udo, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. He's Colin Udo at Colin U-D-O-H on Twitter. He'll be covering this year's AFCON in Gabon for Quasi Sports, which is on Twitter at K-W-E-S-E Sports. Colin, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much, Grant. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Colin Udo as well as everyone at Digital Media and Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, there are other great new and archived episodes you can check out, including my recent interviews with John Green, Bob Bradley, Rory Smith, Jonathan Northcroft, and Juan Carlos Osorio. You can subscribe to and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Do you know about the Locked On Podcast Network, the number one daily sports podcast network? Locked On has a daily podcast on every NBA and NFL team, plus a growing lineup of college and MLB teams. You get a daily bite-sized podcast giving you the latest on your team from the local experts. Lakers fans, search Locked On Lakers. Cowboys fans, search Locked On Cowboys. Just search Locked On, your favorite team, on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts, or tell your smart speaker to play podcast Locked On, your favorite team. Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day.